Hey, and welcome to the Marketing Automation Podcast by Active Demand, your weekly dip into the world of marketing automation, where you get tips for your agency, SaaS product, or B2B company. I'm your host, Adriel, and why don't we get it started? Now, our guest today has been chosen three times by LinkedIn as Canada's B2B sales expert. Craig Elias is an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and a sought-after business advisor. Craig's first business went from initial launch to being funded by a Tier 1 U.S.-based venture capitalist in less than 12 months and was twice named by Dow Jones as one of the 50 most promising companies in North America. Craig is LinkedIn user 3,956 of 700 million users and has been a national growth advisor for Goldman Sachs and Babson College's 10,000 small business program in Boston. He's on the advisory board for Nudge.ai, which is an artificial intelligence company started by the founder of Eloqua, and Eloqua was sold to Oracle for $957 million U.S., uh, in Toronto, and is a mentor for the GrowthX Academy in San Francisco. So welcome to the podcast, Craig. Uh, Craig, one of the things that you mentioned um, in one of the webinars I was watching was uh, making sure that you made a, a great connection with the buyer on some sort of interest. I think uh, a couple of the ones that you had were like scout leader and, and soccer coach and that kind of thing. I was like, oh man, I'm a soccer coach too. What are the odds? This, is, <laughs> this seems such a coincidence <laughs> to me. But I mean, the plan to put you here on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, uh, it was really interesting to me and it kind of reminded me of, uh, I'm going to go on a, a bit of a tangent here. OkCupid had this, uh, this blog post with this statistician that, that he would write on uh, the, some of this big data that they would do for OkCupid. They call it OkTrends. And one of the things that they mentioned was in your first message to someone, uh, you would get a lot more uh, buyers or, or dates <laughs> if, if you gave something interesting about yourself. If you talked about, if you had tattoos, talk about the tattoos. If you had an interest in cycling, talk about cycling because matching closely with more people was a lot more important than matching mediocrely, if that's a word, with lots of people out there. Yeah, so it's better to be loved by some than liked by many. That's the way that I think about this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because when I... When I was in sales, I was in sales for almost 20 years, I had this whole approach around how do I find a way to be what is now called the emotional favorite? How do you find a way to be the person that um, people know, which is the important piece, and then when they know you, they're going to like, trust, and then want to become your customer? And this was something that I did for the longest time. And then when all of a sudden the employer I was working for, they were called WorldCom at the time, admitted to conducting all this accounting fraud, I went from being the top sales guy in the country to nothing. And I started reflecting on my luck as a sales guy. And it turned out this whole approach of relationships first was what got me into opportunities before anybody else. So what happens is... People decide one day they want to change. They're going to phone one person first. And the question is, how do you become the first person they phone when they decide they want to start doing something around this problem? And after I've been doing this for a while, I came across a term. And the term is called propinquity. And I'll spell that. It's P-R-O-P-I-N-Q-U-I-T-Y. And it stands for the impact of nearness. And it talks about a geographical nearness and a psychological nearness. And it turns out when you have these things in common, people are more inclined to share information with you than they are with someone. They don't have things in common. 
And when I think about the things you want to have in common, in the past, it's always been, what are your interests? So I have one of my favorite stories where I talk about an account that went from $60,000 to $3 million in a very short time frame just because the engineers found out that I was a mountain biker and I started building this relationship with all these engineers. And one weekend, I took them to Whistler Blackcomb and it was not long after that that all of a sudden this account blew up in a completely good way. So there's the interest piece. There's the value. So, so what are the things that you care about? What are you not willing to give up in order to be successful? And then there are these aspirations. And aspirations are what are the ways you want to leave the planet somehow better? In my world, my aspirations is how do I, or one of my aspirations, is how do I find a way to liberate and inspire more students when they graduate from college or university to become an entrepreneur right away instead of waiting until they're 43 years old? What's interesting is that when I go and talk to people about some of the stuff I'm up to, uh, and especially if they're rich and entrepreneurial, they're like, wow, this is a really cool program. Would you like some money? <laughs> and so it's got nothing. Sometimes it's really interesting. If you build a relationship first, everything else comes after. I had a female CEO once tell me, Craig, you know what drives me crazy about salespeople? They try to take me to bed before they hold my hand. And that was like, wow, that's really interesting. So then... Um, when I finished the sales and did my startup thing and learned how to use propinquity, I went and I taught entrepreneurship at the University of Calgary for three years. And while I was at the University of Calgary, I learned of something what is called the Johari window, it's spelled J-O-H-A-R-I, Johari window. And it's about the things that you know about yourself and you know about others, things that others know about you that you might not know about yourself. And things that you know about others that maybe they don't tell you. And the whole idea is the more you have in common, this window, the bigger the window is, the more information that you learn of. And this relationship piece is also something written about a little bit by two guys, actually, that I know. Uh, Mike Bosworth, mm-hmm. a very successful guy, sales trainer. And for 25 years, he tried to shove, and I don't say shove process down people's throat, but that's the only way I can describe it, because he was trying to find a way to turn more B players into A players. And his whole approach or philosophy was, if I just teach A player mentality and, and process to B players, I'll have more B players become A players. 25 years later, he was like, that doesn't work. And what he's realized is it is the connection you build with somebody else, predominantly through the use of stories that allow you to build this connection with somebody else. And that's how more B players become A players. There's a really cool guy named Mike Harris down in Melbourne, Australia. He wrote a book called The Seven Stories. I think every salesperson needs to tell. Mm -hmm. And one of them is tell your own story so you find a way to find these things in common with the other people. Yeah, and... uh Right, right on, on your website that you know in a way that's that's compelling to very compelling to some and not mediocre at all. I think that's like part of uh, part of what I think was something that I always struggle with when I'm writing is um, trying to match with match really well with more people, and I always end up going this like too far to down the mediocre path and not matching with very, like a lot with uh, with fewer people out there. It's always a it's always a struggle with writing. It's always a struggle with marketing and communications. Even when you pick your customers, because what I'm amazed at is people say, oh, I want to be, I want, everybody is my customer. Well, everybody could be your customer, but the question is, who's most likely to become your customer? And Jill Conrad says this. She says, the narrower your niche, the fatter your wallet. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, like even thinking about the 80-20 rule, 
you look, you think about the 20% of your customers that make 80% of your profit. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're probably focusing on too many customers that aren't great customers and, and aren't delivering profit for you. Well, and I think the last time I saw some data, I think I saw this from a group called Serious Decisions and they, their argument is that if your pipeline or funnel is more than 3x your quota, you are less likely to be successful. Huh. So the idea is you're better off having fewer high-quality things in the funnel than having everything. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think the, ex- the exact number was 2.8, but I think it's around 3. Interesting. Interesting. Now i got to go look at my pipeline and <laughs> see what it's like. Well, one of the other things that I, that I found that was really interesting that you were talking about was, was finding those, uh, those trigger events uh, those trigger points, uh, I think you'd, you'd uh, connected with one that I'm familiar with, which is uh, Google's uh, Zero Moment of Truth or, yes. or ZMOT. Uh, but tell me, like, what are, what are some of the tips out there for some of the uh, sales and marketing professionals that are listening on uh, on what how to look for trigger events and when to know when, when they're at one? Good question. I think the, the first thing to, to understand, so I come at this approach of customer acquisition and retention around a cycle. Uh, it's not too different from the work that McKinsey has done. So McKinsey, about seven years after I developed my stuff, came to the marketplace to build something. Zmot was a couple years after that. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at this is a cycle. So people are happy with the status quo one day. So they're happy. They're not looking to change. And then an event happens. That event makes them unhappy. And now they're thinking of changing. But the problem is they're so busy solving other problems, they can't get to this problem. It's on their list of things to do, but it's not something they do anything about. And then one day they have a a second event. This gives them more time or more money. Now they start the process of searching for alternatives. This uh, event of now having more time or more money, affording something, the whole idea is you build these really good relationships so you're the first one that gets phoned. But there are ways to get in front of people before they phone their favorite or... If it's you, and then what ends up happening, so now they have a second event, they can afford to change, they start the process of searching for alternatives, they generally need a third event, one that allows them to justify the decision to themselves or to others, and that then puts them back in this whole new status quo. So the most important event that I think of is what's the first event that makes people unhappy? What's the one that makes them start thinking about changing? Because when you get in front of people during the first event, what you get to do is you get to help them define what the problem really is. Because if they define the problem one way, a certain solution becomes way more appealing. If they define a, the uh, problem a different way, a different kind of solution becomes appealing. And one of my favorite stories is of a VP of a bank, had a conversation, he'd heard my name, came to me and said, you know, I need some help with my reps making quota. And I'm like, well, why do you think your reps can't make quota? And he says, it's because they don't know how to close. And I'm like, I don't think that's your problem. I think the problem you have is that your reps don't know how to prospect properly and qualify effectively. And we had this 30-minute conversation about how this solves his problem. So the meeting was over, right? He flew back out of town. I got a phone call on Monday, and I got a phone call back, and this guy starts swearing at me. because says, you know how long I spent to find that problem, come up with the solutions? It was like three months I put into this, and you screwed it all up in like 30 <laughs> minutes. So for me, this is why you want to get in front of someone right away. In the McKinsey model, which is more in the business-to-consumer space, um, they call it a loyalty loop, and when people have this first 
interest triggers, what they call it. Mm-hmm. They create what's called an initial consideration set. These are the ways I'm going to solve that problem. So if you're not there to define the problem, all of a sudden someone goes away and says, oh, I really need this, then it's way too late. So you have to get there first to define the problem. So you're at least in that initial consideration set. It's like when you have a 10-year anniversary, what are you going to do? Buy a car, pets, purses? Or are you going to go to San Sebastian, Spain and eat Michelin-rated food for 10 days because you and your wife are foodies and you have no family in town and it's hard to get a babysitter for your son? Hmm. You know, uh, uh, one thing you mentioned there, and I've seen it a ton of times on the B2B side, uh, customers who send you an RFP or send you a request saying, hey, here's here's the solution we want, and you can tell someone's already had their fingers all over that thing, and you're just being asked to bid as like a, a, a way to for them to check a box on their side. Their corporate policy says they have to get quotes from three people, but they're asking for a quote on something that your competitor is uniquely set up to deliver and not you. In many <laughs> it's ways. It's already in there. Yeah, and this, so this guy, Mike Bosworth, really cool guy, he calls it column fodder. Mm-hmm. I've already got my preferred vendor, my emotional favorite. Now I gotta go away and do my checkmark stuff. Um, I think, I'm trying to remember, if it was one of Mike's books, it was around, I think it's called Consultative Selling, way back, and he has this whole nine box approach. There's an entire mm-hmm. chapter dedicated to how do you respond to RFPs so you at least have some sort of chance. Right. So triggers. It's all about the first one. My favorite in a B2B space is a change in decision makers. Mm. The data I've seen, so from Discover Org, uh, Discover Org says, or well, the last time I saw the data, that any VP that's going to make a decision or a million dollars worth of decisions or more in their first year. Uh, so they do that generally within the first 90 days. So the data goes, I think, like this. Uh, decision maker new in the role, 80% will make a million dollars worth of decisions or more in the first year, and 40% of those, 32% in total, will make those decisions the first 90 days in their job. Hmm. So it's all about how do you get to a new decision maker. But the important thing to remember is just because there's a change in one decision maker doesn't mean there's only one opportunity. And I use the Beatles as an example. So you've got a customer. His name is John. He goes to a new role. What are you going to do? You have to follow him because he may want to come back to you, but someone else might intercept that opportunity. You got to follow John. That's opportunity number one. The question is, who did John replace? Well, that's Ringo. Now, Ringo's in a new job and he has more money, more authority, more influence than he had in his last job. Who replaces John, right, is George. George comes into the role. And the first question you want to ask him is, where did you come from? Because the last person who's going to take but with that role that was left, that role is going to get filled. And before you know it, that's an opportunity. So every change in decision maker results in at least four opportunities. Yeah, you definitely have to seed the uh, uh, emotional favorites lower down with the people who are going to ascend to the, to the new kingdom. <laughs> well, and that's true because what happens is if we aim too high and we have nothing in common with those people, they're not going to pick us. The hard part sometimes is most salespeople, because they're afraid of talking to executives, they talk to lower downs, and it takes a long time before those people move on. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of always, how do you find a way to reach up? How do you stretch to try and find a way to say, how do you add value to the person who I currently have today as a contact? How do I add value to their boss? Yeah, right. I mean, like that's that's all really good tips. I mean, we've all felt the the sting of uh, a change of point of contact that results in the loss of a contract, and I think that really hurts. And I think like some of the some of the tips you're offering today are great for uh, 
making that a positive when there's a change in POC at a company but, where you but, can grow it or, or gain a customer. So that's true. So the, the process I teach is called a one sales analysis. Don't analyze the deals you lose. You want to analyze the customers you lose, but analyze the deals you win. And one of the questions is what event or what events led up to this purchase and when did they happen? The piece about a lost sales analysis, I think people will just want to get off the phone. They're not going to tell you the truth. But if you lose a customer, you can again say, what was that event that triggered you or what change caused you to go to somebody else? And the data says 32% of the time it's a change in decision maker. Mm -hmm. The data also says that 28% of the time it was actually a change in salespeople. So if you're my customer and I leave as a salesperson, 28% of the time customers will go find somebody else. Because they kind of put up with stuff because Craig was there. Now someone else takes his place. Yeah, not going to happen. I have my second favorite and I'm going to move my business to my second favorite. Mm, yeah, that person that they connect be uh, uh, better with. Yeah. Um, maybe while we're talking about getting new customers, there's this concept of uh, inbound to outbound that you, uh, that you cover. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm a big believer that the purpose of anything inbound is for the, is to be able to do outbound stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm also a big believer that if you're going to create content that people find compelling, you have to create content that tells them how to avoid mistakes. So the top seven ways to choose the right vendor, seven ways to avoid this, because people are more likely to act in order to avoid a negative than move towards a positive. So now they're going to come to your website, fill in a form. The data from MIT says you have to phone that person back within five minutes or less. And if you wait, uh, if you do it in five minutes versus 30, you are 900% or nine times more likely to actually talk to that person if you phone them back in five minutes or less. Now, the question that comes to me all the time is, well, what questions should I be asking? Because more times than not, people pick up the phone and try to sell you something, but you're not ready to buy yet. So I'm a big believer of asking a few key questions and always asking the same three questions to get the conversation started. So, um, hi, Sean Craig here. I saw you filled in the form. Can I take two minutes and ask three really quick questions? Um, the answer, I, have, I don't remember anybody ever saying no to me. I've been doing this mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, so question number one is, did you get the email that had the resources that you were looking for? Because maybe it ended up in spam or something else that didn't happen. Um, the second question is, uh, I'm curious how you heard about this content. Like what resonated when you saw it? What was the thing that you were kind of looking for? It's what mm. I want to hear. What resonated when you saw or heard about this content? Get a little bit of research out of that first <laughs> Research, call. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I've heard of this strategy called smarketing. How do I combine sales and marketing together to be more effective? And it was in my research of smarketing that I found you. Or I heard of mm. trigger events and I heard about you. So I know what it was that people were looking for, and I can keep track of that. Yep. And then my last question always is, and I say it the same way all the time, I'm curious what happened recently that made that, co that content more important or more relevant? And what am I listening for? What, what the trigger? I'm listening to that yeah. event. And if I know it's an event that makes them thinking of changing, then I say, well, can I ask one more question? And the question is, I would love to find a way to, you know, talk about this for, let's say, 20 or 30 minutes. Can I get some time next week? And if they say no, then I'm going to say, well, what about two weeks out? And if they say no, I say, well, what if I made it three weeks out in 20 minutes? And what I've learned is people seldom say no three times in a row. So now I got my 20 minutes. But the second question always then becomes, who else should be on that call? Because the data I've seen from a guy named Donato Dario says that a second person on your first call 
makes you three times more likely to get them as a customer. We are so frequently going to get someone whose boss told them, go look for this thing, but really the boss is the decision maker. So that's a great way of getting the, the real person in the room, right? It is. Well, and I try sometimes to be able to get the person with the problem and the problem with the, and the person with the money mm. in the room together. Because if one person leaves, so this is what is often called single threadedness. I'm on the advisory team for some really cool guys, um, Steve Woods and, uh, Paul Tashima, who own a company called Nudge, and they sold their first company for like $957 million, and they realized that relationships are the key to sales, and they had this concept they call single-threadedness, and it's the biggest killer of sales, and most people don't realize it. You have this one relationship between a sales guy and a customer, and if that relationship dies, you're done, that you need to find a way to have this multi-threadedness on both sides of the equation. And that's one of the reasons why I always say, who should be the second person on that call? That's the way I start this process of getting multi-threadedness in and makes it more likely I get them as a customer. Yeah, that's some great tips for, for taking those form fills and, and doing something with them. I mean, every time I've called a customer within that five-minute window, they're always amazed that, oh, wow, you called me really quick. Well, and especially <laughs> if, you, yeah, if you don't try to sell them, but if you learn, this is a term I'm sure everybody's heard a hundred times, but you, you earn what you learn. So if you phone because you're curious, instead of because you're trying to sell something, you're going to be way more effective. Yeah, that's that's some really awesome tips. Um, for the, uh, this is this is not enough time to really dig into this subject. For people who are who are listening, who want to learn more about uh, more about this style of selling, how do they how do they get a hold of you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. If, you, if even if you just go to craigelias.com, it'll redirect you to my LinkedIn profile. Mm-hmm. It has my cell phone number and my email address. And if you send me a LinkedIn connection request. I'll actually send you back a link so you can download the entire book that I've written about this whole piece. Oh, wow. Uh, and if you don't like to read, you go to youtube.com forward slash Craig Elias, and I've got some webinar recordings. One of them's like 14 minutes long. So just like this, short, succinct, gets to the point. Any of those work. And if people want to ask questions, they just have to call or text me. Awesome. That's uh, that's an incredible uh, uh, availability, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will uh, will appreciate it. Thanks again for being on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Good luck, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. If you think someone else at your company should listen to this podcast, send them the link activedemand.com forward slash podcast. We've also got lots of great articles on our blog that go into really specific in-depth topics to help you out. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like covered, shoot us an email at support at activedemand.com or send us a tweet. Thanks again for listening and have a killer day making your business better through automation.